Peas and Pause listeners, welcome back. This is your host, David Rayburn, and this is another episode of At My Institution. Today we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Kyle Fulton here at Children's Hospital of New Orleans. We're going to be talking about some growth and development, as well as uh, some board pearls related to craniofacial abnormalities. Uh, Dr. Fulton is a pediatrician who completed an additional fellowship in craniofacial medicine, and he has a special interest in craniofacial as well as, you know, good old growth and development topics. So welcome, Dr. Fulton. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and get started with just kind of overall view of growth and development. Uh, there's lots of growth charts that we're asked to interpret on the boards. So what, what's kind of a good approach and how should we look at these for the boards? I think first of all is um, always make sure that your measurements are accurate. Um, so when you've got a kid and kind of seeing how they're trending, if there's a sudden change in your growth chart, recheck it. When it comes to weight, length, or head circumference, um, always kind of double check and make sure that this change is real and you're not basing um, your life or your, your decisions on, on an inaccurate number. Yeah, that would definitely be a mistake. <laughs> yeah. So I think more for the boards, though, they really want you to look at the trends okay. um, on there. So as far as you want to make sure that you have a good trend, right, on that yeah. growth chart and that you're not having sudden variations. Uh, so I think head circumference is a big one, right? Yeah, definitely um, kind of want to make sure you're staying within the same percentiles um, once the child has kind of established their growth line once they've established where they're growing at, want to stay within within that area kind of for both weight, length, and head circumference. So as far as our babies are concerned, uh, are there things that we need to look into as, regarding growth velocity um, in our neonates and infants? So knowing that the growth charts are percentile, so there are going to be 3% of kids that are below the growth curve. There's going to be 3% of kids that are going to be above the growth curve. Typically, for me, at least, I don't accept a low growth curve without some other explanation. Um, if they've got a specific syndrome or um, specific anatomic issues, they're still going to grow. They're still going to grow on their own curve. They're not going to flatline and typically shouldn't be losing weight either. If I've got a kid that's not gaining good weight, I typically want to look into that and figure out why and not just accept that Little Johnny, he's got a cleft palate, so he's just not going to grow well. That's not an excuse to me. Um, I want to look into it and, and figure out what else is going on to, to make sure that you're maximizing the patient's growth, which in the end is brain development as well. So if you're given a question and they're consistently growing on, the, on a curve, but it is you know, less than the first percentile, then it's worthwhile potentially to look into other reasons for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are they were they early? Were they premature and we didn't realize that so we're not correcting them on the chart? Or do they have some underlying genetic syndrome that we've not figured out yet? Do they have underlying endocrine or hormone issues? Or are they not getting enough in? Do they have GI issues? So kind of walking through your head and kind of making a quick differential and and working through that. Am I going to send every kid that's not growing well, am I going to send them all to GI genetics and, and endocrine? No. I think it's going through and thinking about what else would that child show and, and, and using your differential to figure out what, what would be the best thing for that child. Perfect. 
And then the other one uh, that they want us to think a little bit about is just how the proportions in children are different than adults. Uh, anything in particular that so we should know? I think that is referring to the fact that kids have a lot of weight in their head. Their head's quite a bit bigger than the rest of them proportionally, um, especially compared to an adult. Um, typically head growth kind of levels out um, at about three years old. Um, at two years old, you can remember that the growth chart really kind of starts to more level out, but it truly does after three, your head doesn't grow that much more. Um, it may some, but it's, you're, you're not getting that crazy velocity like you did when they were smaller. And initially, they're just walking all with it, around with that big old head on that little body. Exactly, and that's the reason <laughs> we talk about car seats, too, because proportionally, a kid's head is so much heavier, and that's why we want them rear-facing in a car, um, so that that car seat can absorb the weight and can absorb that impact instead of the majority of their weight being in their head kind of flopping around um, in those instances. Perfect. I think that leads nicely into our next uh, subject, kind of talking about head circumference, which I feel like that is highly testable. Um, any approach, any tips that you have for approaching kind of head circumference? I know looking at trends, again, that's what we're going to start with, verifying our numbers and making sure it's truly the right size. Uh, but beyond that, uh, any other kind of tips? Um, I would say the, the majority of times when I have a kid that changes percentiles or changes their head growth it is because someone was not measuring correctly so a scale is a scale a height chart is a height chart a head circumference is tough to do it's something that you have to practice doing um, even the nurses in my clinic have issues getting a head circumference on kids frequently um, so when I'm in head shape clinic when I'm in clinic seeing kids for differently shaped or sized heads I always keep the, the measuring tapes on me to redo it. Um, but other than that, always want to focus on development um, because typically head circumference is a direct correlation with brain circumference and brain growth. And if you've got a child that's microcephalic, are they microcephalic because their skull isn't growing or are they microcephalic because their brain isn't growing? Typically, it's because their brain's not growing. Um, and so you want to make sure that you've got development. Remember your, your key milestones. When you've got a kid that you're concerned about, pull out your ASQ. If you're in clinic, um, in Jen Pete's clinic, I recommend using developmental screeners pretty regularly um, for your well visits. But especially if you've got a kid that you're worried about head size, pull out um, whatever tools you have in your disposal to, to really investigate development. All right, so kind of on the other side of things, we talked a little bit about um, microcephaly, but what are some things that we should consider or think about for macrocephaly? And then we're going to talk about the different shaped heads with the craniosynostosis and uh, plagiocephaly as well. Okay, so macrocephaly, I kind of approach the same as microcephaly. I want to assure my head measurement is normal. I want to look at my trends. Is their head circumference trending the same with their height and weight? Are they just a big kid? Are they, is all of them above the 97th percentile? Or is it just head circumference? Are they disproportional? I want to, again, look into development. Because if this child has a larger head, 
than the rest of them, but they're developmentally normal. I want to look into kind of the benign kind of micro, or macrocephaly, similar to there's benign familial macrocephaly. So sometimes you can measure the parents' heads and there's growth charts for head circumference for adults out there. They're not as easy to find. They're not in, in your EMRs, but you can find them on the internet. But you can also ask families, in general, do y'all have larger heads? Do y'all have differently shaped heads? Or is that something that you can't wear a typical shirt? You can't wear a typical hat? Um, and that's something that most families know pretty quickly. Um, and that's if the kid is developing normally. If the child's not developing normally, or there's a dramatic difference between head circumference and the other growth parameters, want to think about what else can cause increased head size. So is the skull growing too fast? which is pretty rare that the skull itself is growing, but the, uh, the stuff underneath is not. Another thing is fluid buildup. So hydrocephalus to increase intracranial pressure can cause larger heads. But if you've got a kid that has a larger sized head, no other signs of intracranial, increased intracranial pressure, but has developmental delays, I think it's worth chatting with your neurologist. If you're ever concerned about hydrocephalus, chatting with a neurosurgeon, but typically a lot of head sizes can be normal versus not normal based on development. It's kind of the key point there. All right, very good. Well, now we, we talked about big and small, but what about when the head shape is actually different? Uh, so something like plagiocephaly, for instance. So this is something I feel that most pediatricians completely lack in their training. And that's um, not a knock on pediatricians at all. I was a pediatrician for several years before I did my craniofacial fellowship. And all I knew about head shapes was, if it's weird, send it to somebody else. Get it to someone. Do you send them to neurosurgery? Do you send them to plastic surgery? Who do you send them to? I don't know, but send them to somebody. So now that I've done this fellowship and spent a lot of time looking at kids' head sizes and kids' head shapes, I feel like there's a couple quick things we can chat about to, to quickly put kids in a benign category or a needs further workup category. In the benign category is plagiocephaly. So plagiocephaly was not super common before the early 90s. And in the early 90s, the American Academy of Pediatrics started pushing back to sleep campaign to prevent SIDS. And it went over very, 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 very well. SIDS rates have dropped dramatically since the early 90s, but plagiocephaly has skyrocketed and, and a lot of kids, majority of kids actually, have some degree of plagiocephaly by the time they're about six months old. It's actually a good thing in this case. Exactly, exactly. So we know that the kid is sleeping on their back to prevent SIDS, so then we end up with plagiocephaly, um, which in and of itself, it's typically just uh, a cosmetic thing. With plagiocephaly, it's typically positional, meaning that it's due to external forces, the child laying in the same position or on their back, causing either one side of the occiput being more flat than the other, or sometimes even symmetrical flattening, so you end up with kind of brachycephaly or short skull. Typically, plagiocephaly is not present at birth, and it develops over time. Things that increase the risk of plagiocephaly would be something like torticollis or developmental delays. You want to make sure that 
If you've got a little one with some neck tightness, with some concern for torticollis, or developmental delay, as with any other thing in pediatrics, you want to get them in physical therapy and early intervention as soon as you can to help prevent further tightness and further developmental delay. If you start noticing plagiocephaly or a flattening of the skull, you can start with conservative measurements. So getting them in physical therapy if they're having the, physical, um, the torticollis, encouraging family to do more tummy time when they're awake and playing with them, getting them to sit up in either seats or other developmentally appropriate things to keep them off their back as much as possible when they're not asleep, trying to keep them out of their car seat, kind of playing, not in those reclined positions. Most plagiocephaly continues to get worse up until about four-ish months or six-ish months when the kid's starting to sit all by themselves. So until that time, I think you can continue with conservative treatment at, in your office, talking about those things. If by six months or even at four months, if they're continuing to get worse or not improve, I think that's a time that you can consider getting them to your local clinic. So a lot of children's hospitals now have plagiocephaly clinics or head-shaped clinics. It's typically run by someone in the plastic surgery department or the neurosurgery department. And they are basically looking at the patterns of skull growth and, and kind of skull shape to see is this plagiocephaly that we can treat conservatively? Is this something we want to talk about a helmet for? Which that's a different discussion and I'll touch on that in just a second. Or is this head shape actually not fit the pattern of plagiocephaly and need to talk about a surgical intervention or further imaging for something like craniosynostosis? Most plagiocephaly resolves all by itself by about a year old. Most kids with plagiocephaly, the vast, vast majority of them, have the same neurodevelopmental outcomes um, unless they have developmental delays that worsen their plagiocephaly. If they have developmental delays, of course, that's going to increase their risk of not as great neurodevelopmental outcomes in the long run. But most neurotypical children that have plagiocephaly, just because they have a differently shaped head, they're gonna develop normally um, for everything else. So when do we talk about doing a helmet? Depends on where you live. Some centers, some plagiocephaly centers, if you walk in the door, you get a helmet. Um, <laughs> some places, like in my clinic, we definitely talk about the risks and the benefits with the family. Most plagiocephaly gets better all by itself. There was a great Cochrane study out a couple years ago in the um, New England Journal of Medicine that looked at plagiocephaly helmeting versus not helmeting. Basically, it showed that helmeting didn't change that much. There wasn't a whole lot of benefit. However, you can find evidence to support helmeting. You can also find evidence to not support it. Like the majority of things in medicine. Like the majority of things. However, it's super controversial and what our take on it with my team is if the child has significant asymmetry, especially when it comes to facial asymmetry, which you can sometimes see with severe plagiocephaly, it might be worth talking to the family about a helmet. But if it's mild, like the majority of kids, and it's getting better on their own, we don't even, I offer a helmet because that's typically why they're there. But when I tell most parents that they don't need a helmet, they're relieved because it is not an easy undertaking. It's a 23 hour a day for at least four to six months of wearing this helmet. It's not just a put it on while you sleep thing. It's a, it's a big undertaking.
plagiocephaly versus craniosynostosis. So craniosynostosis is early or premature fusion of the sutures. Typically, when that happens, it happens in utero. It's before the baby's born. And when the baby comes out, they have a difference in skull shape. Sometimes you don't notice it immediately because all babies have some sort of molding or overriding sutures or just differently shaped heads when they're born. But over that first couple weeks, little guys with craniosynostosis, it, it doesn't get better because those bones are fused. Craniosynostosis prevents the skull from growing in a perpendicular angle than the fused suture. The most common is sagittal craniosynostosis. So that's the one that runs right down the middle of the skull from the anterior to the posterior fontanelle. If that suture is fused prematurely, it causes the head to be very narrow because it cannot grow perpendicular to that suture. So it can't grow laterally outwards. So, but the brain's gonna keep growing. The skull is gonna keep growing. So you end up with an oblong shaped head typically a more prominent forehead and a more prominent occiput and just a very narrow head shape that does not get better over time. When it comes to looking at skull shapes, there's a seeing enough of them to get pattern recognition down. Typically what we're taught is plagiocephaly is a parallelogram shaped head. So basically, if the baby is sleeping on their right side, their right occiput is a little flat it pushes the right ear a little bit forward, and it pushes the right forehead a little bit forward. So you end up with two parallel lines with the forehead and the kind of flat spot on the occiput. And that is typical for plagiocephaly versus something that you are more concerned about, which is something like landoid synostosis, which is extremely rare of all of the synostoses, it's less than 1% of them, so it's pretty rare to have um, lambdoid synostosis. But with that, you have a restricted growth in the affected occiput in that area of the lambdoid suture. However, like we said, the, the brain's gonna keep growing, the skull is gonna keep growing, so you get a compensatory growth of the contralateral occiput and parietal area and also the contralateral frontal area and you end up with kind of a mastoid bulge just anterior to where the lambdoid um, is fused. So you end up with a rhomboid shape. Instead of parallelogram, you end up with two converging lines. And that's kind of the board spec. They tell you it's a parallelogram shaped head, it's going to be plagiocephaly. If they tell you it's a differently shaped head, if it's narrow and oblong, it's going to be scaphocephaly or sagittal craniosynostosis. If it's a rhomboid shaped head, you're thinking more lambdoid. How do we correlate this to real life? A good exam, just like in 99% of all his questions on the board, you can get your answer with a good history and physical. So a couple pearls for examining a skull shape. Do not use frontal bossing. No one knows what that means because it means something different to every single person. I hate it. I get so many kids sent to me for frontal bossing and there's a hundred different things that it means. So describe what you're seeing. 
describe whether it's prominence, whether it's flattening, where your prominence is at or where your flattening is at. But in general, if you're going to trying to decide between plagiocephaly or one of the synostoses, look at a top-down view and get your overall shape. If it's teardrop, you're worried about metopic synostosis. If it's parallelogram, it's plagiocephaly. If it's rhomboid, you're talking about lambdoid. If it's an oval with just really narrow, it's scaphocephaly and you're thinking sagittal. So that's my first thing when I'm looking at a kid's head. I always look top-down view. My least common view that other people look at that, that we in the craniofacial team do is a posterior view. So looking, have the kid sit in mom's lap, talk, and she's talking to the baby, so you can see how the baby's skull base is sitting. Is their skull base level? Because it should be. Um, look at the mastoid prominences. If it's level, you're more likely talking about plagiocephaly than lambdoid. If your skull base is not level, that's not normal. Um, so you're thinking more of a synostosis. If your ears are asymmetric vertically, if you have one ear that's higher than the other, that also is not normal because that's telling me that the skull base is not level. That makes me more concerned. Ears can be displaced horizontally from the top-down view, anteriorly or posteriorly, and that, that can be normal with typical plagiocephaly. But vertical dys dystopia with, with your ears is not normal. Along with facial asymmetry, if you kind of do a good face exam and look, are their orbits symmetric? Is their nose midline? If they don't have facial asymmetry, I'm typically not as concerned for one of the synostoses. You've done a good exam, you've got a good history, now what do you do about it? Good question. So if you're thinking plagiocephaly, you're going to do conservative management unless it's not great, unless they've got a lot of asymmetry, and then you're going to talk about sending them to your local children's hospital to a craniofacial team. If your local children's hospital does not have a team, I would recommend you find the closest craniofacial team to you. Research shows that kids that have craniosynostosis do better when taken care of by a full team. Send them to the local plastic surgeon, neurosurgeon. It's very rare to have a craniofacial pediatrician, but if you do, um, send them to that at your local children's hospital. For craniosynostosis, we typically talk about surgery, and the specifics of that are way too detailed for, for this scope. As soon as you're concerned about a synostosis, send the kid, because there's some surgeries that can be done early on that are more minimally invasive than basically taking the top of the skull off and remolding it um, to, to simplify it a lot. So yeah, so if you have questions about head shape, do a good exam. You can always look at photos online because um, it's just straight pattern recognition. I think that's a good way to think about it too, though, as far as the levelness of the head. I imagine that might be a little bit beyond some of the scope of most of our pediatricians, but taking that into account can probably help save you uh, some of these trips to a faraway children's hospital, potentially. Yep. All uh, right, very good. Well, Dr. Fulton, thank you very much for your time. We're going to come back for another episode and talk about the uh, craniofacial topics. But Perfect. again, we really appreciate your time. Perfect. Thank you.